Welcome to Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast with your host, Steve Shulwolf. Thanks, Phil. This is Steve Showolf, your host to Opening Doors for Resolution, a mediation podcast. This is episode five, and I am here virtually with two guests, Dan Litchfield. Dan is the founding partner of Litchfield Cabo. He has a national practice where he has represented insurers in at least 30 jurisdictions across the country. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Thanks. And as I said, Dan typically represents insurers in insurance coverage disputes, so it's only fair to have somebody to articulate the other side of the argument. And today we have Seth Lambden. Seth is a partner at the law firm Neil Gerber and Eisenberg. He's the author of numerous chapters of books and articles on insurance recovery. He's a fellow of the American College of Coverage Council and typically does work on behalf of policyholders. Seth, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Steve. It's great to be here with you and Dan. Before we get delve into some of the legal issues related to insurance coverage for COVID-19 claims, I'd like to thank all the healthcare providers who efforts are to diagnose, to heal, to find a cure that allows lawyers like me to stay at home and safely speak into a, a microphone. Uh, your efforts are, are very much appreciated. And frankly, before we delve into legal issues, I just thought I'd ask, you know, Dan and Seth, my understanding is you're both uh, at home today as well. Dan, we'll start with you. How has this whole coronavirus pandemic impacted you and your practice? I have never probably spent summer in high school, been home this many days in a row for any purpose at any time. I've been blessed with good health and I've been blessed with constant employment in my adult life. So that's the largest difference. It's taught me a lot about working remotely. And I thought I was awfully good at it already because I travel extensively. I'm really good in hotel rooms. But I've learned a lot of tricks, and there are ups and downs to this working at home business, and I'll leave it at that. So th that's my takeaway. Okay. Well, and I, I'm right there with you. Uh, I uh, last week admittedly conducted my first two Zoom mediations. So I guess uh, you wind up perfecting technology when you're when you're forced to. So that that's one way it's uh, impacted me. You know, another way for me is it's been a little bit unusual. I, I know other people have had to deal with their helping their kids with homework and having their spouses around. My wife is a doctor. In fact, we moved to Austin because she's the chief medical officer at a local hospital here. So it's been a little bit unusual for us in that she's actually been out of the house more 
than she was before. So uh, I've taken over all domestic responsibilities, and I, I almost made a mistake here. I, I started up the dishwasher right before the podcast, but then realized that since I'm doing this out of the kitchen, that was going to be too noisy. So uh, unfortunately, right when we're done with this, I'm going to have to make sure the dishes are clean. What about you, Seth? How's this impacted you? Well, I've become a lot more uh, eco-friendly. I've learned that I don't need to print out every single insurance policy or case that I'm looking at. Frankly, I've been sort of surprised how smoothly the transition has gone. You know, my practice is comprised maybe 50% counseling and and 50% litigation. I don't have a sense yet of how things are going to be impacted on the litigation side because, you know, none of the deadlines in my cases have even come up. They've all been, been kicked. And, you know, on the counseling side, things haven't changed much. I, I do miss, you know, sort of the hallway conversation, shooting ideas off of, you know, other lawyers testing out theories where I think a lot of invaluable work is done. But, you know, we're, we're using Zoom conferences and, um, you know, trying to communicate that way. But, you know, other than that, it, it sort of surprises me how seamless the transition has gone. And it really calls into question, I think, you know, how many people are going to be going back to offices full time. But a different conversation for a different day. All right. Well, thanks. And today's conversation is insurance coverage for COVID-related claims. My last episode I did with two West Coast attorneys, uh, Frank Weiss out of Portland and Mark Schrake out of Los Angeles. And we spent a lot of time talking, frankly, about, I think, the cases that have won the race to the courthouse, the business interruption, uh, commercial property type claims for restaurants and and other businesses that are seeking uh, lost income due to uh, the coronavirus itself or maybe to uh, related stay-at-home orders. And that podcast, we talked a lot about the requirement in these type of business policies for a direct physical loss you, Seth, Dan, and I talked in advance of today's podcast that we we really weren't going to uh, rehash that. But one of the things that I think we do agree with, and I just want your uh, input on this, is that business interruption type claims, whether they have exclusions, whether it's just a case of whether the coronavirus can be considered something that caused physical damage to an insured premises, this is a really big deal. I think this is going to keep a lot of people on both sides of the V busy. And I know in the insurance coverage universe that we live in, there's always the discussion of what's the next big thing. But uh, Dan, would you agree that these type of claims are going to create different jurisdictions and based on different policy language, subtle differences and and new law that's going to keep some lawyers busy uh, for a while? I tend to agree with that. By the way, I I need to say very briefly that uh, I'm speaking for myself at all times on this podcast and not on behalf of any client or my law firm. These are my own personal views. And my own personal view about your question is that I think that overall, these will have legs in certain places. I think that we'll see how the direct physical loss piece runs its course state to state. And at the end of the day, I think it'll be the state Supreme Court decisions that'll let us know what the scoreboard is on that. But that's the only real, the only thing that I would think is even close to a magic bullet in this area. And to the degree that that is not an issue on which 
one side or the other prevails, I would predict that there would be follow-on litigation about a host of other things case-to-case, which does imply what you said is exactly what's going to happen, that this will have legs, you know, classic example of good for the lawyers, bad for the client, keep the lawyers employed for a considerable time. Well, I'm not going to put words into his mouth, but I'm sure Seth would probably argue that, you know, it's also potentially good for the clients as well. Seth, as somebody who represents policyholders, I imagine that whether you're in your basement or you're at Neil Gerber and Eisenberg, you're getting lots of questions from policyholders about what their options are. Yeah, there's no question. And actually, I guess before I jump in, I should give the same disclaimer as did Dan. These are just, you know, my personal views on these questions shouldn't be imputed to my firm or clients. But in response to your question, certainly the week of, you know, around March 17th, March 18th is when a lot of the closure orders were issued. And that week, that following week, my phone and the firm, phones of my, you know, insurance partners were ringing nonstop because all of these businesses had purchased property insurance and it also had a coverage that was, you know, often referred to as business interruption insurance, colloquially referred to as that. And businesses had a, a sense that they had what, again, is referred to as business interruption insurance. And they started reading all of these articles online put out by people like me, <laughs> setting forth a lot of the, the arguments as to why there may be coverage. So, of course, everybody wanted to know, um, you know, has this coverage been triggered? Is there anything here? But what, one thing I think that has been sort of surprising some of our clients, or, or maybe it's the things they hadn't focused on, is the issue that, that you and Dan were just talking about, which is the idea that this isn't insurance for the interruption of business in the abstract. It's, it's business interruption insurance or time element coverage flowing from some sort of covered physical loss or damage. So I think that, that's been sort of a, a surprise to some of the clients and, and people we've been talking to. But yeah, there's, there's no question every business that's been impacted has been asking the question, what can we do? Do we have any recourse? And, you know, what kind of investment would we have to make to recover those policies? Because there's no secret that these are going to be heavily contested claims in the court. Makes it expensive for everybody. Well, and since everybody's putting caveats out there, uh, my role, whether it be in mediation or on this podcast, is uh, just to to be neutral, to facilitate some uh, conversation. So if I seem to agree with somebody on one point or not, it's really just to uh, play devil's advocate and try to uh, move conversations along. One thing that is definitely out there and being discussed in some of these articles, so maybe, Seth, I'll kick this to you. What's the impact of some of these exclusions that we've seen uh, discussed? I know there's some some virus exclusions, some communicable disease exclusions. From what I've heard from people like you who represent lots of different policyholders or potentially are being asked to consider reviewing their policies, it looks like there's a lot of different iterations and different languages here. So I think one caveat that I, I'll make on behalf of all three of us is that you know, we might talk about a lot of these issues generally, but I think when it comes down to insurance coverage, one thing that people agree on is it always comes down to what the particular language was of a particular policy and how the facts of a particular case, you know, apply to that. But with that, what are some things that you're seeing on the exclusion uh, area? That's an interesting question because, you know, getting past the property damage issue, this is where we land. And, and so in looking at any of the exclusions out there, 
you know, policyholder attorneys are looking at them, I think, through two filters. The first of which is you know, the insurance company has the burden to show that an exclusion eliminates coverage, number one. And number two, to the extent that the exclusion at issue is ambiguous, it's most likely going to be interpreted in favor of the policyholder and in, in favor of coverage. But you're right. I mean, at, at bottom, it's going to be the, the language of the exclusion that controls, which is important because you hear a lot of talk about the virus exclusion. There, you know, state legislatures are talking about the virus exclusion. You hear references to the virus exclusion, but that's sort of deceptive. And that might be a reference to the uh, the ISO virus exclusion that was issued in 2006 or 2007. But there's also a number of other exclusions that are out there, ones that apply to contaminants and pollutants, for example. Sometimes the term virus shows up in the definition of contaminants, but they're worded differently. So what I'm saying is, you know, really to your point, it, it is important. It's crucial to look at the language. And there will be arguments made. One of the arguments that I'm, I'm hearing is in you know, property policies that do distinguish in some ways between communicable disease and virus, the question is, if the policy refers to communicable disease in one place and virus is in an exclusion, does that render the, the term virus potentially ambiguous when you have really the COVID-19, the disease that you know, people are, are, that are infected are carrying on one hand and SARS-CoV-2 being the virus? Uh, what's the cause here? Is it the cause of a disease-carrying person or um, you know, the presence of the, the virus itself. So there may be some ambiguities there. One of the other arguments that I think is somewhat compelling is that some jurisdictions will look at a pollution exclusion and they will apply it to what they view as traditional pollution only, as sort of the groundwater contamination from industrial sources that we all think of, and don't apply it to what maybe is non-traditional pollution, like in Illinois, for example, the Illinois Supreme Court held that a release of carbon monoxide from a defective heater in a building was not did not fall within the scope of the exclusion. So some of these exclusions that we're seeing, even the ones that do use the term virus, refer to discharges or releases of the virus, which are really sort of terms of art in the, in the environmental world, sort of buzzwords. And so the cases that have found that a pollution exclusion doesn't apply to non-traditional pollution, that logic very well may apply to invalidating some of the virus exclusions here. And then the last piece really is pollution exclusions that do not contain the word virus or do not refer to disease. And, you know, again, it's jurisdiction specific, but I would guess that most jurisdictions are not going to find that a pollution exclusion that does not refer to virus uh, eliminates coverage for uh, coronavirus-related losses. Okay. Well, like you uh, you alluded to on the pollution exclusion uh, jurisprudence, some jurisdictions, Illinois and Columns, takes a look at whether you're dealing with a traditional environmental claim. Some jurisdictions take things literally and so may very well, even in the absence of uh, including virus, uh, look at the coronavirus within the pollution exclusion. But Dan, Seth, there was a lot to unpack there. So why don't you uh, pick and choose what out of that you uh, think is uh, worth some commentary on the exclusion side. As always, Seth is very skilled in uh, working through a number of arguments. And if I miss something, that doesn't mean that I agree. 
I'd start with the ISO exclusion as well. I think filed in 06, effective January 1 of 07, Seth pointed that out. I don't see where the ambiguity would be in that. When I read it, I thought immediately of the total pollution exclusion, not the so-called absolute, but the total, which has fared exceptionally well in the courts that have addressed it. I would predict that the virus exclusion would do just as well in the courts that address it. I myself understand the, uh, the attractiveness for purposes of debate and argument of sort of cross-referencing and cross-pollinating, as you were, the pollutant exclusion on the one hand and the virus exclusion on the other. But I don't see how that's going to hold up. In particular, I'm not sure that there's a commonly understood sense of traditional viral contamination as opposed to non-traditional, hearkening to the Collins case. In the virus exclusion arena, I don't think it lends itself, if you read the exclusion, to an indoor-outdoor separation, which you see in some of the pollution cases. I don't think that there's going to be a crossover of being able to cite pollutant exclusion decisions in support of arguments against the virus exclusion. And I'm talking about the, the ISO virus exclusion. I agree with Seth, you've got to look at the form. And form to form in particular, there are different kinds of virus exclusions out there. I think that they're relatively prevalent in agricultural policy, where it's an example of a situation where you actually have direct physical loss to property from a virus. And that is, everybody forgets that the herd of cattle or sheep or whatever are property. You know, many people have pets and they don't think of their pets as property, but legally they are. So a virus that causes a farmer to have to uh, destroy livestock would be direct physical loss to property. And there are virus exclusions in that context. And I think a lot of thought needs to be given about the consistency of that approach to things in that context. With regard to the definition of pollutant in these policies, I would uh, not cross-pollinate the virus exclusion, the pollutant exclusion, and and argue them simultaneously, mixing and mashing them. I think that you look at the policy and you look at what the definition of pollutant is. I do not agree that in the absence of the use of the word virus in the definition of a pollutant, that would mean that the pollutant exclusion would not apply to a virus. I think that, again, is a matter for state-to-state legal development. I would predict that in a state like Indiana, based on the Kiger case, that Seth would probably prevail on that argument because that's already been trotted out in the environmental context in Indiana, and policyholders have fared exceptionally well with their arguments in the courts in that state. But there are other states where I would not predict that the argument that the definition of pollutant doesn't use the word virus means that the pollutant exclusion does not apply, much less that there's any cross-reference from the pollutant exclusion over to a uh, virus exclusion. Well, personally, I can tell you that having litigated against George Plews for about, I think, you know, the last 18 years before I uh, moved to Austin, I was shocked, stunned that his firm was the the first firm in Indiana to file a, a coronavirus claim. But I agree with you, Dan, there, Flexstar, where Indiana says it, it goes a little bit in a different direction than uh, the traditional environmental claims. I think there might be some arguments in Indiana that, frankly, might not be available to Seth and in other jurisdictions. 
Well, thank you. I think uh, both of you guys set forth some of the issues that we'll see and be reading about, I think, for years to come. We focused a lot on the virus exclusion. So, Seth, you were talking about the virus exclusion and how it interacts with the pollution exclusion. But what what about the, the communicable uh, disease uh, exclusion? And in particular, we've seen some legislatures talk a little bit about whether there should be coverage. We've also heard from some insurance commissioners. So, for example, I think it's still on the Kansas insurance commissioner's websites where they basically are telling people that they doubt that policyholders have have coverage because most of these policies have a communicable disease exclusion. So at least to Kansas, that particular exclusion seems very relevant. So uh, what, Seth, have you heard in terms of the impact to uh, your clients and potential clients if they have that type of language in their policies? You know, interestingly, in the in the property policy context, what I'm seeing more of is some policies have explicit communicable disease coverage, but the coverage is quite, it's very sublimated, it's very low, and it, it applies only to the actual presence of, of a communicable disease. And, and it's sort of hard to, to think about, you know, wh- where that would provide much coverage here. I mean, you know, there are businesses that are cleaning up coronavirus, for example, and I've had you know, clients feel that. But that's not where the real business interruption losses are are coming from. So we're seeing it there. But there's real questions in my mind as to how a communicable disease exclusion would apply in this context. And I, I don't know the answer. I mean, it's something I've given thought to. I mean, and again, I keep going back to the distinction between the disease caused by the coronavirus, COVID-19, and the virus itself. And, and what policyholders or advocates are focusing on when they're talking about physical loss or damage to property, what they're focusing on is either the actual presence of the virus or the, you know, threatened imminent presence of of the virus. And so, you know, again, it depends on on how they're worded, but I do think there may be more room for policyholders to argue that perhaps the communicable disease exclusions don't apply. I mean, in the liability context, it's a little bit easier. I mean, there's an ISO exclusion that eliminates coverage for bodily injury caused by communicable disease. So that's not really all that controversial. But in the property context, it is sort of an interesting issue. And I think there's going to be, it's going to be an issue perhaps colored by expert testimony and and maybe focusing on the distinction between what constitutes the disease and, and the virus, if there is any distinction. Dan, what do you think about that? Do you think you're going to have to, uh, actually proceed in litigation a little bit farther down the road and hire experts in order to invoke a communicable disease exclusion? Well, like I said before, I think there will be cases where that will happen, perhaps because of an erroneous decision by the trial court about the threshold issue of whether there's direct physical loss. But I'm not sure I see a legal ramification from distinguishing the COV-2 virus on the one hand from COVID-19, the disease on the other. I know that there's some attractiveness in some quarters saying that the disease is not a virus and thus the disease that people are afflicted with tragically would not be a virus and somehow or another that, that has a legal import. But we're dealing with the property coverage in the current discussion, not a bodily injury situation. BI to be sure, but the other BI. And as a consequence, I'm not sure that distinction is one that makes any difference 
in the context of analyzing a direct physical loss to, to, to property. I do agree with Seth about some of these other coverages, event cancellation coverages, conference cancellation coverages, some of the communicable disease coverages I've seen. They tend to have their own standalone definition. They tend to have uh, relatively limited sublimits. Mostly what I'm seeing are definitions of communicable disease that do not include SARS. And of course, COV2 is a SARS. So um, I think that there'll be a lot of, probably a lot more debate about that. But from my perspective, I see the difference between the virus and the disease as a distinction without a difference in the first party property arena. Well, as a mediator, we usually bang the drum about how expensive and potentially uh, more long-lasting litigation can be than the litigants uh, hope, at least initially. So uh, I look at things in terms of litigation risk, and I do think that some of these arguments that both of you have articulated very well really do create litigation risk to the other side. I'm not aware of any case law that analyzes whether SARS was a communicable disease. I have seen I think in the Legionnaires context, I think there's a case down in uh, Louisiana, the Paternostra case, that at least on a, a motion to dismiss stage, felt that the insurer had not demonstrated that Legionella was a, a communicable disease. There wasn't a ton of analysis on that case, but again, you know, for me, the punchline that I would stress to litigants is that I, I do think that there's you know litigation risk out there. You know, one thing you guys can help me out, and because I do think. Most people are refining their arguments, they're researching, you know, by different analogies, what is going to be persuasive here for coronavirus. But I think conventional wisdom here is that this is so big that, Seth, your clients, it may be a bet the company type of situation. Insurers are talking about it on the aggregate of if there's coverage for all of these claims, that's a bet the company type of litigation on the other side. And frankly, as a, as a mediator, those are the hardest cases to resolve when both sides really feel that but for a win, they might not be able to, to continue to, to practice. What I've kind of thought, and I'm interested in uh, your reaction to, is I still think that there's parts of these cases, whether it's a damages side or whether there's particular language that either side in the course of confidential settlement discussions might actually acknowledge is a little bit weaker you know, for them. There's always a chance to settle these. I know at the beginning of pollution cases, nobody was settling them. Eventually, as Dan, you pointed out, law comes down and then these cases become more normal. And we know most cases, you know, do settle. But obviously this mediation podcast, I'm a mediator. So I like to give you guys a forum to talk about what litigation positions were. But I'm interested in what's your general take? Are we going to have to wait before we're going to even consider talking? I know I've heard from many people that it's going to be impossible to get the first insurance company to even consider paying one of these claims. But do you look at these cases as not being settable, at least in the immediate short term, or do you look at these just like you look at any other civil case? Uh, I'll start with you, Seth, since uh, you're probably the plaintiff, or at least the party uh, seeking uh, some money from the other side. Well, my view and hope is that all these cases are settleable. But again, that's because I'm the plaintiff. 
And my clients are either investing money in fees to pursue these claims, or even if they're on a contingency, they're out lots of money. And, you know, as you point out, there are plenty of companies that will talk about best of company cases. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. These quite literally are. The losses that I've seen, as you know, are, are also mentioned in the news, are, are staggering. So it's my hope that given the legal uncertainty on both sides of the V, that there will be some cases that will be amenable to settlement. Now, that may be driven in large part by the reasonableness of policyholders. No policyholder that thinks they're going to get 100 cents on the dollar is ever going to settle one of these cases, but that's true about every single case. So it's my hope, and I, and I don't know, it's an interesting point that you make. Is it going to take one ruling either adverse to insurers or adverse to policyholders to embolden one side, and, and will that push towards settlement, or is it going to be the more likely view that every court, every state, every jurisdiction is going to look at this perhaps differently, and you know how persuasive is a state or federal trial court opinion going to be? Perhaps that not that much. And I also wonder if where there will be room to settle, perhaps, are going to be some of the oddball cases out there. There are going to be some sets of facts that don't fit within, you know, what we're seeing in the pleadings that are now being filed almost daily. Restaurant was operating just fine, couldn't operate you know, at all, or to, had to operate at a reduced capacity after a shelter-in-place order. Urban area, there's coronavirus everywhere. Uh, therefore, property loss, blah, blah, blah. Dan, did I get that right? <laughs> Is what they all look like? No. Oh, oh, you got it right on what they look like. Yeah, you didn't get it right on actually the conclusion. But, uh, <laughs> no, no, yeah, I wasn't trying to pin you down, but that's what we're seeing filed. Yeah, oh, I, I, agree. Filed. I, I agree with that description. Yeah. And so, you know, those complaints, they have a common set of facts, and, and courts will go with it. But there are going to be some oddball cases out there, maybe those with the actual presence of the virus in the premises, maybe a company that you know, wasn't subject to a shutdown order, but voluntarily shut down to avoid the, you know, there may be things there where there's perhaps room to settle in part, because I think even though these settlements will be confidential as most are, I suspect there's probably a little bit of distrust out there and, and perhaps reasonably so that, you know, companies will be indirectly perhaps disclosing settlements with their insurers, whether these are SEC regulated companies and they're going to be disclosures or otherwise. And I think that that will hurt a little bit too. Insurers are not going to be all that excited, I think, about settling cases if they're concerned that word's going to get out that they're all settling cases because then it's going to draw more litigation. Well, and Dan, uh, I realize that this question might be a little bit more difficult for you in the sense of uh, I in no way am implying that you'd be suggesting that any of your clients are you know have any appetite towards settling. So I'm I'm really just asking the question from kind of the mile high view in terms of, you know, ultimately, are these type of cases going to be perceived like other civil cases? And we know some civil cases you you take to the mat, some civil cases uh, usually are resolved. Steve, from what I've seen of the data, I don't think they can be perceived like normal civil cases, probably in any context. The data that I've seen suggests that if there is coverage for these losses, and of course, I, I believe very strongly based on my own analysis that there isn't, but that's not something about which everybody agrees with me. But if you presume that these are all covered and you just look at the sector of 100 employees and fewer for the policyholder side, my understanding of the data is that you go through the entire net worth of the U.S. insurance industry, property and casualty, 
in about two and a half to three months of business income payments. At that level of threat, and particularly given the belief in the insurance industry that this was not underwritten, was not priced into the premium, is actually not capable of being underwritten, is what I think the actuaries would tell you. You can draw your own conclusions, and it's not a matter of having an appetite to settle. It's a matter of whether there's even a possibility of settlement. There's also, I'm I'm sure, always going to be a concern in all quarters about being consistent. Policyholders and their counsel do a very good job of uh, reading the Internet, and it's devolved. uh, This isn't Seth, but in many quarters, it's devolved into a game of gotcha in the insurance bad faith arena, and, and you have to be real about that. So given the combination of the threat level and the need to be very consistent with what you do, I would be very surprised if for the foreseeable future, there would be many, if any, insurers that feel that it's possible to settle these these claims, uh, much less whether they have an appetite to do it. No, and I don't disagree with that. I think any good mediator needs to be both persistent but also realistic. And the reason I framed the question was that these cases truly are bet the company cases on both sides. And and, and those clearly are the type of cases that are the most difficult to settle. So, But what I think then you all should do is, since you'll be very busy with COVID type of related claims, your other coverage claims, you should really consider moving on to mediation. No, uh, (laughs) obviously self-interest there. Let's move on to one thing. We've we've been talking a lot about the business interruption cases, uh, the property cases. And I think we all believe, you know, based on, as Dan put it, the data makes those cases a different animal than some of the things that we've litigated before. I think in some other respects, I'm not sure that COVID-19 is necessarily a game changer. So let's talk a little bit about CGL policies and the type of cases that can be brought and whether there there may be duty to defend issues. I, I think you're both in Illinois. So I, I think I've seen the, uh, I think it's the Evans versus Walmart case where uh, unfortunately, I think the estate of um, a former employee of uh, Walmart has uh, sued breach of care, failure to uh, provide a safe work environment. So Let's talk a little bit about what type of issues those type of cases may raise, and do we think that that's going to dramatically impact the way insurers and policyholders are responding in the same way that we've seen the the disputes on business interruption? What what do you see there? Uh, I guess I'll start with you, Dan. I don't see the the CGL or the liability side as having the same issues or, frankly, the same magnitude that the property side is having. The Evans case, if I'm thinking about the same one, I think it was a Southside uh, Walmart, might have been a couple employees who are deceased. You've got issues, obviously, about the, the workers' compensation bar under the Illinois statute, but I'm sure there will be other cases that will emerge, and there are that have, many that have emerged, particularly the cruise ship complaints that are, you know, kind of traditional-looking bodily injury claims. I was fine, and because of you, I got sick. My relative was fine, and because of you, they got sick and they died. As I look at those, I, absent some special endorsement on a policy, some particular situation in a given case, 
I don't see those sorts of claims, the bodily injury claims, you negligently caused me to get sick or negligently caused somebody to get sick and die. I don't see them as leading to significant coverage litigation. I could be wrong, but that's just my take on it. Certainly at the level of the duty to defend, for which there's an extremely low threshold in many states, if not all, I think at the very least, you're looking at defenses under reservation in those sorts of situations. What the indemnity situation would look like probably depends on facts that get developed as those cases uh, bump along. So at the threshold, bodily injury, I don't see a wave of big-time coverage litigation with regard to that. Property damage, there's a very important distinction between the CGL policies and the property policies, and that is the CGL policies have a definition of property damage that includes loss of use of tangible property, uh, loss of use not at all being direct physical loss under a uh, first-party policy. So, again, that opens up a different line of analysis and development on the liability front. But last but not least, my impression of what I read in the media is that there isn't a driver on the litigation front that would cause a huge wave of impact on CGL policies. I don't think anybody's saying that the public at large, well, with one exception, there is, I guess, a case where somebody has sued the nation of China saying that they're responsible for everything. But absent that, I don't see a theory that would cause a wave of litigation where every man, woman, and child in the country would have standing to bring some viable litigation. And as sad as it is that we've had so many deaths, that's a finite number of claims that is based upon the overall size of our population, I think running you know, probably well less than 1% of the total population, probably even substantially less than that. I think it's running at about 3% of those who are diagnosed are fatalities. Sad as those cases are, much as we, we mourn what has happened to our fellow citizens, and as many as there are in a gross number, the data doesn't pile up to me to suggest a huge wave of litigation implicating CGL coverage issues that are going to you know, be characterizing that side of the ledger the way coverage issues are characterizing the first-party side of things. How about you, Seth? Do you see uh, some potential stumbling blocks to uh, the insurer-policyholder relationship on the CGL side? Well, I mean, I guess as a, as a jumping off point, I, I agree with Dan. I can't really envision a huge onslaught of coronavirus-related bodily injury lawsuits that would anywhere near approach you know, what we're seeing on the property damage side or even, I mean, I think, you know, the DNO and ENO lawsuits are going to be legion and the market, you know, as I've seen as my clients go through renewals is responding in kind. But on the CGL front, yeah, I mean, I think there will be some coverage disputes. I don't know that they will anything new that we haven't seen before. And I think I agree to the extent that I'm, and I'm understanding correctly that I think in most parts, it's going to be a defense subject to a reservation of rights. But, you know, there are a lot of liability problems with these cases. You know, how do you know where, when you contracted COVID-19? Can you really pin down a place? I mean, a lot of these claims are going to be being, or a place in the time, a lot of these claims may be brought by employees. So you're really talking about claims through the workers' comp system and not through CGL. I mean, I suppose there could be some product liability claims about, 
you know, PPE that didn't work. But, but that's not, those aren't coverage issues. So I guess where I would envision the indemnity battlegrounds would be, number one, is there an occurrence? Is the failure to prevent or protect someone <laughs> from contracting COVID-19 or being exposed to the, to the virus, is that an occurrence? And, you know, I can't say I've looked at this recently, but I would wager to guess that you could probably find cases on both sides of the, um, of the argument there. I think some insurers will try to invoke the pollution exclusion or a pollution exclusion and contend that to the extent there was any bodily injury contracted by exposure to coronavirus, that's limited by the pollution exclusion. Some policies do carry ISO communicable disease exclusions. That'll be an issue too. But, but none of these issues, these aren't issues that are really trying on complete new ground, like I think a lot of seeing on the property damage side. So there are the, the tools are in place. I think to evaluate the, the CGL claims, and for the most part, you know, I can't really envision. You know, it's not going to be like the environmental contamination cases where you had all these new issues of trigger or asbestos and all that. So I think it's not going to be anywhere near what we're seeing on the property side, to be sure. But that's also because there may not be as much underlying liability or, or lawsuits as you know you're seeing every business is impacted on the property side. Well, you know, I know we're dealing with three lawyers who like to talk, but I think we took a few minutes to actually come to, you know, a little bit of an agreement. I think you guys were at least in general uh, in agreement in terms of predictions of what happens on CGL cases. Doesn't mean we're right, but uh, at least we uh, found a little bit of common ground. I think, Seth, you you mentioned that there's obviously other lines of coverage. We, we You know, there's event cancellations, insurance. My wife and I were big jinxes this year. Uh, we came down to Austin. We, we bought passes for South by Southwest. That was one of the first big events to get canceled. And for our 10th anniversary, we were going to go uh, to the Olympics in Japan. Anything we were trying to do this year has has been canceled. We're not going to cover the insurance coverage uh, components of that. I think we did talk about, I know as a tennis fan, Wimbledon actually did have some coverage that some other uh, places didn't. And that's a discussion for another day in terms of the impact of that. There's going to be DNO disputes, all, all types of other potential lines of coverage, but I've taken up enough of your time today. I do have one question for both of you. And I say this in all sincerity, there is no right or wrong answer. Dan or Seth, have either of you ever listened to any episode of my podcast? Dan, I'll let Seth go first. <laughs> <laughs> I'm embarrassed to tell you the answer is no, but until you kindly contacted the Seth and I to offer to uh, have us participate in your podcast, I didn't know you were doing these, and I'm now eager to listen, but I have to get off this 12-hour-plus uh, billable day schedule I'm on right now <laughs> to, uh, to be able to do that. Understood. If I were a betting man, and my wife knows that I am, I would have thought that the answer was no for both of you. So, Seth, have I predicted that correctly? <laughs> you have, but next time we talk, the answer will be yes. All right. <laughs> yes, I have. So I, I, I don't take it personally, although it means we're going to do one last thing before we wrap up because it's something that I do on every uh, podcast. And with two guests here today, I'm going to try to bring you guys together. So we're going to play a little bit of a game. Dan 
Dan, you're going to be the participant. Seth, you are going to be Dan's attorney. So for the purposes of this game, I am bringing policyholders and insurers together. So Dan, I know you recall, as I do, let's make a deal with uh, with Monty Hall. Uh, you remember that game show? I do. Okay. So if you remember, one of the things that they did on that is Monty showed a contestant three doors. And behind two of the doors, there were goats. And behind one was a, a brand new car. And they play the game to see whether the contestant can win the car. So we're going to do a little bit of a version uh, of that. Seth is going to try to, to help you out. We've got three doors. And this will make sense, possibly, in a second why, why I do this. But uh, Dan, you have your option to pick door number one, door number two, or door number three. The rules of this game is after that, I will disclose the location of a goat behind one of the doors that you did not select. And then after conferring with Seth, you can decide whether you want to switch or to stay with your original door. Do you understand the rules, Dan? Yeah, kind of sounds like taking a change of judge. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, so, all right. See, before we proceed, Seth and I both like to know what kind of car we're going to get. Oh, all right. Well, um, it's a Maserati. <laughs> like I said, I play this uh, with everybody. You're the first person to ask me, well, you know what the what the car is, so I'll I'll have to keep that in mind. But uh, all right, you've got door number one, door number two, or door number three. Which door, Dan, are you going to select? Let me just take the middle, door number two. All right. So now you have selected door number two. I am telling you that behind door number three there was a goat. So now I'd like you to invoke any words of wisdom from your attorney, Seth, Dan, do you want to stay with door number two or are you going to switch to door number one? Seth, I need your advice. I very much want a Maserati. And (laughs) if you advise me poorly, I'll need to know who your carrier is. So please. (laughs) Wait a minute. I was saying that I was bringing you guys together, not to threaten, you know, uh, malpractice litigation. (laughs) Steve, we're lawyers. <laughs> yeah, no, well, Seth will, Seth will tell you, obviously, his male practice carry isn't going to cover it anyway. So, you know, you might as well just listen to his advice. And I'm just joking. Uh, Seth, Seth is the <laughs> finest attorney as I could have, and I need to know where my car is. Seth, please. I think the conventional wisdom, and I have never understood the conventional wisdom, but I think the conventional wisdom is you should switch. So is that, I'll, I'll take the, that. Uh, All right. So we're going to door number one now. There you go. Yes, I think that's where the car is. All right. And for the first time on this podcast, we have a winner. I'll be sending you a picture of a Maserati. Uh, both of you will have that emailed to you. <laughs> that's great. Steph, you get a third of the Maserati. There okay? you go. So, so I get it every other weekend. <laughs> Visitation rights. Well, you know, I also do family law mediation, so I'll try to broker a deal on that. So, Seth, you said that you heard conventional wisdom that you have to switch, but you, you didn't understand it. So you've kind of heard this uh, this game before. Somewhere in the back of my mind, are you able to explain it? <laughs> I, I will try. Really the case. Yes, I, I don't recall getting it. I will. I will try, and I'll put a plug out for the the website as well. There's both a game. There's a tab at my website, showwolfmediation.com, called Resolution Roulette. 
You can play the Monty Hall game, and afterwards, if you want an explanation for why it's on the website, why I talk about it, there's an article explaining. The real reason has to do with just kind of processing information, recognizing when you're learning something new and when you're not. So I think everybody will agree that when Dan first chose door number two, he had a one in three chance of being correct. And once I reveal that there was a goat behind door number three, what people tend to think is I now have a 50-50 chance. It's either door number one or door number two. The fact that there are two outcomes doesn't mean that the probability was equal. So you have to ask yourself, based on the, the rules of the game, whether my revealing a goat, like I told you I would, whether that actually meant your odds improved? And the answer is no. And so if you think about it this way, if in your original selection, you chose the car, and then I revealed a goat, and you switched, you lose. But in both situations in which you chose incorrectly, so 67% of the time where you chose a goat, when I tell you where the other goat is, I'm actually telling you where the car is because I have to show you where the goat is. If the rules of the game were that I randomly would open a door and if it turned out to be the car you just lost, then it would be different. Then you would actually be gaining information. And if I didn't reveal the car, it would be a 50-50. But because it's not random and I'm telling you that you have to, that I am going to disclose a goat, your chances are better by switching. So there's an article on the website that talks about that. One of the interesting things is you're the only people so far who haven't done this. Everybody else has not only not switched, they think it's a 50-50, you know, it's 50-50 whether they win, but they don't switch because psychologically one of the things that we all struggle with is switching away from a winner. That's worse than if we were incorrect from the beginning. And I would submit that that impacts psychology of some negotiations. Some people hold on to their initial assessment of a case longer than they should um, because they either are not properly processing information as the case has gone on or don't want to. So I play that game a little bit. We can have a longer discussion as to whether that's truly relevant or not for, for litigation. But go to the website. You can uh, take a look at the longer explanation. But you guys will go down in the history of this podcast as uh, the first winners. So, uh, I mean, Seth, I think it's only fair that you really get the credit because Dan made it abundantly clear if you chose wrong he was going to you know go after you and your carrier so uh, you, oh, you, you get the credit. Quite, quite a motivator <laughs> uh, that's proof that under pressure he is the man <laughs> well both of you are and i very much appreciate you taking the time out of your uh, as you pointed out dan your busy 12-hour billing day to uh just sit and talk with a guy uh you know in his kitchen here in austin texas so it, it's been much appreciated i hope you enjoyed it. I did. I hope the audience, uh, if they didn't learn anything about potential insurance coverage, hopefully they at least enjoyed this. So so thank you very much, guys. Well, thanks to you both. It's been a lot of fun. All right. Well, that closes the door on this episode. Stay tuned and uh, go to uh, showwolfmediation.com for any future episodes. Thank you very much and take care. This closes the door on Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast. 
Please join us next time where Steve will discuss with a new guest topics related to mediation, negotiation, and resolution. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.